Today, we continue the series on origins, the beginning of everything. You know, we've, we've talked about the beginning of, of space, time, uh, matter, all these things that God spoke into existence. We've talked about God himself and the evidences for the existence uh, of God. While we, believe, while we believe in him by faith, uh, there is evidence that God uh, exists. And last week we talked about the origin of life, but I want you to keep in mind a couple things we've talked about as we continue on through this series. The first is Genesis 1-1. Can't get that out of our minds where scripture says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And, and we talked about the first three words there. In the beginning God created is breshit bara Elohim, Elohim, the plural word for God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and bara, the word for creation of something from nothing. And we've talked about how that, uh, that word comes up again when animal life or soul life or conscious life is created. And then that word, word came up again, as a matter of fact, three times in one verse when God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created uh, human beings, male and female, in, he created in his image. And so uh, those words are important. Then Genesis chapter 1 concludes, Genesis 1.31 concludes with these words. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. We're not going to read the first three verses of chapter 2, but the first three verses of chapter 2 actually are part of chapter 1 as God concludes his creation and blesses the seventh day of rest. Today what we're going to look at is the remainder of Genesis 2, which is actually a, a, a more detailed account of the, for, with a purpose behind the detailing uh, of the events of the sixth day of creation. <clears throat> and as we look at these verses, we're going to stop along the way, of course, and, and, and consider what they mean. But we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, thinking about those for a minute, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Uh, we transliterate the, the Hebrew word there, it's the toledah. Uh, and later, it'll be, this is the history of Adam or the, the generations or the, the, the history of the family uh, of Adam and so on. This is a word that comes up over and over again in the book of Genesis. And this section that we're reading today, as indicated by that first part of verse 4, traces the history, the account of what happened, what became of the heavens and the earth that were created. And what we're going to find out, not all today, we're going to do the first part of it today, is that what became of the creation is that sin entered it and devastated it. And that's the why things are the way they are today. This portion of Genesis that we're going to be looking at today and next week answers the question why. Why, if the world was created very good, and we read Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it was very good. If the world was created very good, why is there so much pain and suffering? Why is there so much anger and hatred in this world? Why are there natural disasters and death in this world if it was created very good? And the things that we're going to read in chapter 2 and then in chapter 3 explain the origin and effects of sin in a very simple yet profound way. It starts by describing this perfect existence of the first human 
couple, thereby outlining God's pattern of the relationship that's, that he intends to, ha to have between the sexes. By the way, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about marriage today. But then it tells how one apparently minor act of disobedience to God, the seemingly insignificant thing, upset everything and led to the expulsion of human beings from paradise. And, and notice there's a phrase there that I've also underlined, the Lord God. In the previous chapter, we just had God, right? In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. But now we have this phrase, the Lord God, that's going to come up a lot in chapters two and three. Hard to use anywhere in the Old Testament, but it sums up two really important ideas. First of all, is that God is man's creator, Elohim, the Lord God. He is the creator of the heavens and earth, but, but he is also Yahweh. He's also the Lord. He's also our friend, the covenant partner uh, of Israel. He is also the one who reveals himself to us and I believe died on the cross to save us from our sins. And so in, this is the history. This is what happened uh, to the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. This is not the description of what happened before day three when the plants were created. Uh, this reference is actually uh, to a time when there was no agriculture going on. You know, we have these, these phrases, the plant of the field, the herb of the field. We're talking about agriculture here and there was nobody to till the ground. And, and so what we're talking about here is, uh, is the earth is ready for the, the, the people to get, uh, get there and, and take care of it, but they're not there yet. We might think of this technique as a flashback. This chapter is a flashback uh, to the earth as it was prepared for humans, but before they were created. And along that line of uh, God had not caused it to rain, verse six says, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. The original hydrological, hydrologic cycle or water cycle was drastically different in the uh, original earth than in the present day. You know, present day, uh, uh, which began with the great flood, uh, our weather involves global and continental air mass movements and annual seasonal temperature you know, changes that go on, cold fronts, meaning warm fronts, low pressure, high pressure. Uh, uh, pull your phone out, you look at your apps, you know, it's, it's, it's all right there, which reminds me that I didn't turn my phone off down there, so if it rings, I'm in trouble again this morning. In the original world, however, there was no rainfall on the earth. As originally created, the Earth's daily water supply came primarily from local evaporation and condensation. I look at the seas, and I, I think uh, people used to talk about, we, got a, we didn't get any rain, but we got a heavy dew last night, you know, and it was sort of like a heavy dew, you know, just enough water to take care of things and spring-fed spring -fed rivers. And this brings us again to the world, ready for human occupation, and then follows the process. The world is ready for human occupation, now we have the process of what God talked about in chapter one. You know, when God said, let us make man in our image, uh, here's the process that he used. Verse seven, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now you notice I, I put a little note in there, uh, the breath of life, plural. This is actually the breath of lives. It's significant, not just the breath of life, 
but the breath of lives. And man became a living being. The work of the Lord in creating human life involved fashioning the man and breathing in to the man. And the fashioning part, Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. This is a, the work of an artist, like a potter shaping an earthen vessel. So God formed the first man from the clay. Man, man was made by a divine, divine plan, but he was also made from the ground. Now that's not obvious when you take a look at a person because human flesh and dirt don't seem to have too much in common, except that kids eat dirt sometimes. But other than that, that uh, flesh and dirt don't seem to have anything in common, and yet modern science has shown us that the elements are the same. <clears throat> God's breathing the breath of life or breath of life, not only soul life, not only conscious life, but also spirit life breathed into the person. Transform this man's form of clay into a living being that made man a spiritual being with the capacity of serving God and worshiping God, seeking after God. And God put humans in charge of the whole earth. But for this first couple, they had their, their honeymoon place to live, their special place. Verse eight says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. We call that the Garden of Eden, don't we? Uh, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. <clears throat> you know, one of the translations of the Old Testament, one of the first ones was the Septuagint, translated into the Greek language. And interestingly enough, the Septuagint introduces us to the word paradise. In this passage of scripture, the Lord God planted a paradise eastward in Eden. Verse nine, and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So amongst the, this was really a special place, but in the middle of a garden, there were two particular trees, one producing life, the tree of life, you eat it, it produces life. The other producing a certain kind of knowledge and death. The, the experience of disobeying God eating this tree brought death. Uh, God saw a need to put choice. You know, love always involves choice. Uh, love is not forced. Love is something that you choose. And so God gave the first people a choice. And the following description, we're gonna, then we're going to read some other things about this garden. I started not to read these verses, but uh, this is all washed away. But here are some things about this, this uh, place. Verse 10. Now a river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. Verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Verse 12, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. Verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It's the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. Verse 14, the name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. Verse 15, and by the way, some people read that and they say the, the Garden of Eden had to be in the northern part of the Persian Gulf. But since it all got washed away in the flood and those name, anything that's named that now probably was just brought by memory from before the flood, I uh, don't know. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend it and keep it. <clears throat> just a thought there. Uh, people were made to work. We were made to work before sin we work under sin, and when you get to heaven, they're gonna have a job. Okay, work is important. 
and we're supposed to work. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Just stopping there a minute. This is the first use of the word command. God's first command to man concerned life and death, good and evil. And all God's subsequent commands to us have positive blessings and negative prohibitions. You keep the commands of God, which he gives us because he loves us and for our own good, good things come from that. You disobey the commands of God because they don't make any sense to you or because you just don't like them, then bad things happen as a result of that. All earthly goods and pleasures were at man's disposal, but God said, there's only one thing I don't want you to do. That tree right there, don't eat of that. But, here, so here's the explanation, verse 17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof, eat of it, you shall surely die. This, by the way, is very reminiscent of Moses. Moses, who wrote this down. Uh, to the last speech that he gave to Israel that we have recorded in Scripture concludes like this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses says to Israel, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, for I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. That seems particularly appropriate for Sanctity of Life Month. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Verse 20, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. There's, everything is, re revolves around God. And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. Now, we'll get back to that. If the Lord's willing, <clears throat> we're gonna go off in a different direction with this next week. But for today, as we continue in Genesis chapter two, our subject is the origin of marriage. I could have said the origin of the family, but the origin of marriage. And so we continue in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good. Well, he just said it's very good, right? But now he says it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Now, remember that these verses are a flashback to more completely explain the sixth day of creation answer the question of pain and suffering in the world, the world was created very good. Now, before the end of the sixth day, God said there's still something that is not good about this creation uh, before he declared it very good. And the not good part of it was just that it wasn't complete yet. Now, by the way, there's this term helper. I will make a helper comparable to him. Now, we know that's going to be the woman, right? This word helper is not a demeaning term, by the way. It is a term that's often used to describe God himself, who is our helper as he rescues us and supplies for us what we cannot do for ourselves. A helper comparable to him, suitable to him, corresponding to him. One of the things that means is that what is said about the man is also true of the woman as far as their being is concerned in their likeness of God. This comparable helper would be like the man, yet different, perfectly com complementing him and completing the work that God had done. As a part of the explanation, God reveals another detail of the sixth day. 
uh, animals were already created and he, he brought them before this newly created man. He had a purpose in that. Verse 19 says, out of the ground the Lord God formed, had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. Now, this is kind of an amazing thing. How many animals were there? How long did this take? I don't know, but Adam's quick appraisal of each animal and his quick naming of each animal and doesn't seem to be, well, I don't know if I should do that or not. He's just boom, boom, boom. He's making decisions. All this illustrates his high intelligence and his ability to make decisions, the wisdom that he had. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, this doesn't mean that Adam was looking for a helper amongst the animals. What it means is that is that as he looked at these animals and he saw male and female, male and female, male and female, male and female of each animal, he noticed his own deficiency. He did not have what he saw in each and every one of the animals. Of course, God had a plan. And here's the plan, verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. We don't know why God put him to sleep, by the way, because there was no pain before sin, so it wasn't an anesthetic. But for some reason, God put him to sleep. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he, that is God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in the place thereof. The word rib, uh, most places in the Bible is translated side, uh, far more often. Whether it's rib or side, the woman was taken from the man's side, his flesh, his blood, his bone. Verse 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Notice that the woman was handcrafted just like the man was handcrafted, just a little bit different way. Verse 23, and Adam said, wow, probably the first thing he said, but what's recorded is this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, Adam, Adam, is the general word for mankind. But now we have the first usage of human male, human female term. Man, the first use of the term ish means a male human being. Woman, isha, is the for, feminine form, means a female human being. There was no need to say male human being, female human being until there were one of each. And now there is. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his, his wife and they shall become one flesh. Of course, neither Adam nor Eve had human parents. They had God, but they did not have human parents. These words are probably Moses's. Moses is writing this down, probably Moses's commentary on marriage. And verse 25 concludes in this way, and they were both naked, a man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. At this point in time, there was no sin, no sin, no shame. Now, quickly, I'm going to give you three things here, how God created marriage, as looking back over these verses. The first thing is this. God created Adam with an unfulfilled need or desire. I, I couldn't decide between those two words, so I just put them both up there. God created Adam, but Adam was not ful fulfilled. It was not everything that God wanted for Adam. God created Adam with a deficiency. 
And that's the reason Genesis 2.18 says, and the Lord God said it is not good, not good that man should make alone, uh, be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Not good does not mean sin. It means incompleteness. It means God's not finished with, with it yet. It shows that Eve was created on the sixth day before God declared it was very good. We got, you know, in Genesis chapter one, God created male and female. Now we come down to it. And it all happens on the same day. Adam's incomplete state, by the way, was not a surprise to God. God designed men and women to need each other and to complete each other. In general, we are not designed to be alone. We are designed to be completed by the male or the female that God places in our lives. The helper comparable to Adam. The helper suitable for Adam. The, the helper corresponding to Adam was designed just for him to complete him. And that specially designed helper was not an animal. And that specially designed helper was not another man. She was a woman. The marriage of one man and one woman was clearly God's plan from the beginning of everything. A couple of verses here. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Some ladies might like the New Living Translation of that better. It says the man who finds a wife finds a treasure. All of us men have to say amen. Yes, that's true, right? The man who finds a wife finds a treasure and he receives favor from the Lord. Sometimes we forget what a treasure God has given us. You know, we get mad and there's all the kinds of things uh, happen. Gene and I are getting ready to, uh, Betty, where's Betty and Clay, 63 years today, right? They're celebrating their 63rd wedding anniversary today. Isn't that great? Okay. They're probably the example to follow. Gene and I are getting ready to, for 46 uh, in March, on March the 10th. And, uh, you know, hey, we get mad at each other sometimes. Sometimes it's not real smooth. We don't usually show that to anybody else. The kids don't see that too much. They see a little bit more now that they're, they're adults. But, uh, but God designed us that way. And we need to realize, if I have a husband that God gave me, that's special. If I have a wife that God gave me, that's, that's special. She is, uh, she is a treasure. Of course, now let me just say that there are those who are gifted to remain single. Throughout scripture, not a lot, a very small percentage of people in general, but there are people who are gifted to serve God by remaining single, but not most of the population. It is also true, by the way, that a bad marriage is worse than being alone. Proverbs 21, 19, we'll just stick with the New Living Translation. It's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. It goes both ways, by the way. Uh, it, a bad marriage is worse than solitude. But to start with, God created Adam with a deficiency, unfulfilled. A need, a desire unfulfilled. Secondly, second thing that happened is this. God modeled for Adam this deficiency that he had, this, this, this need or this desire that he had. Before God fulfilled Adam's desire by creating Eve, he arranged this review of the animals, right, all coming before him. Right, kind of odd, out of place kind of a thing. 
Genesis 2.19 says, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. The fish didn't come. Uh, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. Verse 20, so Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. The primary reason, might have been teaching Adam some other lessons about the animal kingdom, but the primary reason for this exercise before the creation was complete was to show Adam that he was different from the animal, but that they had something he did not have at that point. For each of these animals, there was a unique and suitable partner. But for Adam, there was no comparable helper. There was no one like him. As the animals passed before Adam and he named each one, he was keenly aware of this deficiency. It was brought up. God did this on purpose. God awakened Adam's desire for human companionship. I'll say this, God will never awaken a desire in us that he will not satisfy in the best way possible if we will just wait, if we will just be patient. Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Put God first. Spend some time thinking about God and getting to know God and talking to God. And you kind of know you're on the right path is, uh, is that when you just kind of think about him without thinking about thinking about him. You know what I'm talking about? It just kind of comes to your mind. Put God first. Now, we can all relate to the desire that God puts within us as kids approach their teens, a legitimate desire for companionship of the opposite sex is awakened within them. They get past the girls, yuck, boys gross kind of a stage. Now, and that's a good, that's what you want. That's what happens uh, in life. The problems that arise usually come from impatience, not waiting for God and impulsiveness. And that's compounded by our, our society that promotes the wrong kinds of stuff and pushes kids way before they're ready uh, for stuff. The happy person is the one who is patient and exercises self-control and who trusts God. I'm gonna do it God's way and I trust that God will fulfill the desire and the need that I have, which brings us to the third thing. God created Adam with this deficiency and God showed Adam that deficiency by bringing the animals before him and then the third thing that God did is God fulfilled Adam's need or Adam's desire. God will always do that. When he, when he brings a desire, a need within us, he always satisfies that. Now, I have an idea that uh, God probably told Adam what he was planning to do, uh, that the woman was not a total surprise. Uh, now, I don't think he could possibly, kind of like a lot of things that happened in our lives, I don't think he could possibly have comprehended exactly what it was gonna be like, because he'd never seen another person. He didn't have a mirror. So I don't think he could comprehend what it was going to be like. But here's what scripture says, Genesis 2, 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he, that is God, took one of his, that is Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Verse 22, the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. Now, <clears throat> this was God's final creative act. 
It was after this that he said it is very good. The last thing that God did. And has been, this is, I'm going to read this. It's been stated by many people, but it's probably putting too much pressure on the rib, but it's still a good thought. The woman was taken from Adam's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on by him, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, from close to his heart to be loved by him. Adam, when he realized his deficiency, didn't run frantically around the garden looking for a helper comparable to him. <clears throat> he waited for God. Now, it's true, God came on the same day and all that. I realize that, but, but he waited on God. Uh, I'd say, I want to give, I, I try to give that advice to everybody. Wait, wait on the Lord, be patient. Uh, be careful with us, like dating websites and, and all that kind of stuff. Be careful with all that kind of stuff. You'd be amazed what God can do if you just serve him. The pain that he can keep from you. Patience is not easy, but it usually keeps us from an abundance of extreme pain. And then we come to the marriage ceremony. So God makes a woman, right? Now we come to the marriage ceremony, Genesis 2.22. We'll go back to that verse. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. The father of the bride, she didn't have an earthly father, but this was the father of the bride, right? Presented her to the man, Adam. And this verb brought, brought her, implies more than escorting her down the aisle into Adam's presence, but it, it denotes bestowing her as God's gift uh, in, in this particular relationship. God performed the first marriage, establishing marriage as his plan. Proverbs chapter two and verse 17 refers to marriage as the covenant of God. In this way, God established the first human institution, the home, and he blessed it with his approval. And that's why uh, marriages uh, today, people want uh, you know, people come to me a lot of times, they, if they don't have a connection with the church, they say, would you do our wedding? And, and my first question is, why me? Why? Um, well, uh, there's something, you know, they think it's, there ought to be something religious about it. In other words, they connect God. They connect God to marriage. And that's the right thing to do. Adam may have been aware of what was going on, but when he woke up, he woke up to the most beautiful intelligent, caring woman who has ever set foot on this planet. And it must have taken his breath away. That's the reason I said his first word was probably wow. And then his other words. And I will say there is no more beautiful sight than, than the bride that a man knows God provided for him and who has kept herself for him. I was a grump. I've said this before on my wedding day. But when I saw Gene, I was down front of the church. When I saw Gene appear at the door of that little church building, everything changed. I said, well, it's worth it now. Verse, verse 23, this is Adam's marriage vow. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam immediately recognized the woman as part of him, part of his own body. Since God formed Eve as a part of 
the man himself. Adam saw her as the same nature, identical flesh and blood, consequently having the same facilities, the same powers, the same rights that she had. He was immediately drawn to her and he realized that she completed him in the same way that he completed her. The permanence of marriage is, is proclaimed in the next verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I said before, these words were probably Moses' explanation of marriage. The word therefore means this is why, or this is the reason, or this explains why a man should leave his father and his mother. Why should, why should this a man do these things because God ordained marriage. Because God created the first man and the first woman for each other and brought them together because he conducted the first wedding ceremony. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother in the sense of forming a new family where he is the leader. He is the head of the house. The relationship with parents can and should remain close, but the relationship between husband and wife must be primary. And that's the sense in which he leaves father and mother. The permanency of marriage is proclaimed in the words, a man shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God originally proclaimed permanent, monogamous, that means you get married once or to one person, monogamous marriage as his will for the family. While God has especially in Old Testament history, tolerated some deviations from his plan. He has never been pleased by any of them, not the polygamy or the concubinage or anything else that happened. And I can, I think with scriptural authority, say the only godly and the only healthy sexual expression is between one man and one woman who are married. Godly and healthy. One other thing here, marriage must be based on Virtue. Genesis 2.25 says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. As I said before, where there is no sin, there is no shame. But these first two perfect human beings in the perfect environment soon discovered that anything can be ruined. The best thing can be ruined by disobedience to God's commands. And they came to know the meaning of shame. They were not ashamed here, but they are ashamed very soon. God still intends for all marriage to be based on trust and faithfulness, fidelity, and moral purity. The marriage vows will usually include words similar to this, forsaking all others. You'll keep yourself only for him or for her so long as you both shall live. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death parts us. A Christian home where husband and wife, mother and father are committed to each other is something to plan for, to prepare yourself for, to work for, and to live for. It is worth the effort. It is not easy. There is sacrifice involved. You have to put aside your own feelings a lot of times. You get tired a lot of times. Uh, 
from a human perspective, you just think, this is like, I can't do this anymore. But it's worth it. It's worth the work that you put into a, a good marriage. And I just encourage you to do that. Before God, first of all, make sure your relationship with him is what it should be. And then work on that marriage that you are in or that you are contemplating. Bow your heads together with me and let's pray. Father, I know you're here with us and I thank you for that. We love you and we thank you especially for loving us because we wouldn't love without you. Thank you for husbands and wives who are committed to each other, for men and women who want to be, uh, for those who are willing to submit themselves to you. We're thankful. Grant us your grace. Grant us your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.